Church, Merry Christmas. I trust you were as blessed by that as, as I was. It almost makes me want to join the choir. Uh, almost done, don't worry. Um, um, what a great joy and delight it is to consider these great truths, to praise God for it. In fact, I bring you this morning good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And it's Him that we come to worship today, to honor and to praise for all that He has done for us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 as we consider the Word of God this morning. Consider how it is we are to respond to His coming. What would He like us to do in light of the fact that He has now come? We see a beautiful passage that is very familiar to you, Matthew chapter 2. As we see various types of responses to His birth. May God guide us this morning as He seeks for us to respond properly. As we see beginning in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have saw saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are especially this morning thankful for the advent of our Savior, Christ the Lord. We are thankful for His birth. We are thankful for His coming. And we are thankful for this opportunity even now to consider Your truth which You have given to us. We want to do so, Father, because we want to know You more faithfully and our Lord more truly. We want to follow Him with greater zeal and joy in our hearts and reverence and delight. And so we ask even now as we consider this passage before us that You would guide us, guide our hearts and guide our ears that we might listen and guide me as I speak that you might receive glory and honor in this your gathered people 
We are especially thankful for our guests here this morning, for family and friends and neighbors who have come. And Father, we pray especially for them, that you would work powerfully in their lives and in their hearts. And Father, perhaps some of them come not knowing the truth or believing they know it, but instead believing a lie. We pray, Father, in your kindness to them that you would open their hearts to your word that has been passed down for millennia and millennia, has recorded your truth that we might know the God who has made us and the one who has sent His Son to save us. We ask you to do it all for your glory, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how's your Christmas season gone so far? I trust it's, it's been a wonderful uh, time for you. In fact, if you had, let's say, one word to describe your, your Advent season so far, how would you describe it? I mean, you could just think of a word in your mind right now. How would you describe this Christmas season? Maybe you would say fun. Uh, maybe you would say busy, depressing, right? expensive, uh, yeah. worshipful. For many people, Christmas season, as you know, and perhaps you know people like this, that Christmas season is not a time of joy. It's a, time of anxiety, time of sadness. I read this week that there are more nervous breakdowns this time of year than any other time of the year. I trust it has a lot to do with the parking lots at the malls. But the, the Christmas time is, it can be somewhat of a hectic time. In fact, about 500 years ago, there was a monastery in London called St. Mary's of Bethlehem. It was uh, turned into a city-run insane asylum filled with uh, people who were hopeless and mentally deranged. And in the 1500s, if you happen to live in London for a small admission fee, you can go to St. Mary's of Bethlehem to heckle the patients. It was actually at this time a very famous tourist attraction in London. In fact, it was so famous they, they had to market it. And so they thought the name St. Mary's of Bethlehem was, was too long and too cumbersome. So they came up with a nickname for the insane asylum. They called it Bedlam, which is where that word in the English originates from. from St. Mary's of Bethlehem in the 1500s. Bedlam, of course, refers to noise and confusion. Uh, it symbolizes the chaos of that asylum. And, and I don't know if, if for you, you look around at... Christmas time and the message of Bethlehem has been lost in all the bedlam. I don't know if that's your experience. I hope it's not. But this, of course, is our time, a special time to focus in on Christ. Of course, with all of our times is to be dedicated to Christ. But, but in, in particular, I think this season is a wonderful time to consider His Advent and to celebrate Him and to rejoice in Him. And I wonder if we get so caught up in all the activities of this Christmas time that we forget the one for whom we are celebrating. It would be like going to a birthday party and, and you forget to talk to the person to whose birthday you're celebrating. You forget to say hello, happy birthday. And I wonder how often we just go through this Christmas with all the activities and the, and the traditions and the, and the events and the gifts and the dinners and the parties and all the rest, and we fail to say hello to Jesus and to thank Him, to speak with Him, to focus on Him, 
to worship him. This is, of course, how the first Christmas went. You know, Elizabeth did not cook a big turkey. uh, Joseph did not light a tree, and Mary didn't wrap presents, and the angels didn't send out Christmas cards, and the shepherds didn't go shopping. Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds, they all responded in one way. There was one response on that first Christmas, and it was adoration. It was awe. It was worship. Even the Magi who come from far, they say, we have, where is he who's been born King of the Jews? Why? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, worship somewhat of a loaded term, isn't it? When we say the word worship, we often think of singing. And, and certainly what we just enjoyed was a, a time of worship. But do you think when the wise men came into that house and fell on their knees before the baby that they, they broke out in song? You know, maybe they asked, what child is this? Right? Or, or we three kings from Orient are. Do, do you think they sang? Maybe. But I doubt it. And yet, nevertheless, the Bible records that they worshipped. Well, how so? Well, you see, the worship is to rightly respond to whom God is. All of life is to be a life uh, of worship. We are to cherish Him and delight in Him and be in awe of Him and, and praise Him in our hearts by prizing Him in our souls. This is what God seeks. He seeks worship. We see that from the beginning of Scripture to the very end. Read the book of Revelation. If you have any doubt that God longs for worship, He seeks to create a people for Himself that they might worship Him, that they might honor and glorify Him, magnify and exalt Him, and bring Him praise. He sent His Son into this world primarily to redeem a people that might not just be saved, forgiven, and inherit eternal life, but might rightly respond to who He is in a life of worship. He did not create a people who would practice empty religious traditions. The people of God are to be people who see and delight in the glory of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord, just like these wise men, or as your translation may say, these magi. The magi were astrologers. They were magicians. In fact, it's interesting that throughout the Bible, all these practices in which the magi engaged in were condemned. And you read the scripture, and the scripture says never practice sorcery or associate with those who do and and so forth. And and those who practice them and the the activities in which they do, they're all condemned except in one place in the Bible, and it's here in Matthew chapter 2. And and it kind of raises the question, why in the world would Matthew include this story in his gospel? The modern equivalent would would be to say when Jesus was born, a bunch of Buddhist monks showed up and bowed before him and worshiped him. Or a bunch of imams came, Muslim imams came and bowed before Jesus and they worshipped him. And if we were to read something like that, the red flags would kind of go off in, in our hearts saying, what is going on here? This is very odd. This is very unusual, right? Well, why tell a story of these foreign pagans who practice the condemned acts throughout Scripture are some of the very few people who show up and acknowledge the birth of Christ in adoration in their heart? Why? I can think of only one reason. Because it happened. I don't think it adds anything to the validity of Matthew's gospel. In fact, if anything, it probably detracts from it. It does not help his cause one bit. 
I think he recorded it because these events actually occurred. And I understand that many people in today's day would, would object to that idea. Come on, pagan magicians from Far East traveling hundreds, if not a thousand miles to worship a Jewish Messiah seems a little bit ludicrous. It does, I think, at first glance. But it is interesting to note that there was a common belief at this time that when a great king was born or died, the heavens would show it. In fact, in 44 BC, it was discovered about 100 years ago, um, about 40, in 44 BC, when Julius Caesar was being buried, the very moment they were throwing dirt upon his, his corpse, there was a supernova. You know what that did for the astrology business? It was just common knowledge at that time that, hey, when a great king was born or died, the heavens would show it. It was, has also been discovered that the year Jesus was born, there was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn forming what appeared to be a brand new bright and brilliant star in the heavens. Thirdly, it has been discovered that at this time when Jesus was born, there was a rumor circulating in the Roman Empire that a great king would come from Judea. Now, this was not a Roman uh, rumor, uh, excuse me, a Jewish rumor. This was a Roman rumor. So the Roman historian Suetonius, Tacitus, the Jewish historian Josephus all recorded this rumor. In fact, the rumor was so influential that a man named Vespian, who was the Roman general who went to Judea to put down a rebellion in the year 60 AD, returned back to Rome to fight for the, the Roman throne. And he claimed he had the right to the Roman throne because he was the ruler who, was, who has been prophesied would come from Judea. And you put all this together, you got magi, astrologers, aware of this rumor, know that the heavens declare the birth of a great king, and on May 29th, most likely in the year in which our Lord was born, they see a brand new star in the sky, and in light of all this, it makes perfect historical sense that these astrologers would come. And, and by the way, where do they go? Well, they, they, they're looking for a king, so they go to the capital. They go to Judea, they go to the capital city, and they say, okay, where is this king? This is how they respond to him. Of course, not all who, not all respond to the coming of Jesus like these magi. Right? The magi would seek them with their hearts, I'll show you in a moment. But Herod would seek him, but with hatred. The priest wouldn't seek him at all. I like this morning just to simply consider these three responses to the coming of the Messiah. And how they continue even to this day. That God might guide our hearts that we would respond to him rightly. Consider, first of all, that some would respond to Jesus with selfish hatred. Notice verse 1. Now after the days, excuse me, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. You notice that Matthew identifies the time in which this is taking place as the days of Herod the king, often called Herod the Great. Herod is a ruler in this region. He was appointed to that, ro that role by his father, who himself was appointed by Julius Caesar. And then you see okay, Herod's the king, and then Matthew tells us in verse 2 that the wise men were saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So they're looking for a king. Well, Matthew says, well, verse 1, Herod's the king. And then you look in verse 3, and it says, when Herod the king heard this. So we see in verse 1, Herod's the king. In verse 3, Herod's the king. And the Magi, they, they show up and they say, we're looking for a king, but it's not you. You're not the one we want. 
In fact, we're looking for the, the king of the Jews. It's just interesting to me that in 37 BC, the Roman Senate declared Herod the Great to be the king of the Jews. That was his title. Herod must be thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. What do you mean you're not looking for me? It did not sit well with Herod as we read in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You can see him there in his throne room agitated, face growing red, um, visibly shaken. And he was not the only one troubled for we continue verse 3 reading, and all Jerusalem with him. All Jerusalem was agitated and troubled. The reason why is that they lived under a king who happened to be insane. Herod would, would uh, uh, not accommodate any rival whatsoever, no matter how close to him. In the past, he had killed half the Sanhedrin. and another event, he had killed 300 court officers. When he was 70 years old and would only live a few more years, he killed his brother-in-law uh, with a drowning and then funded a state funeral where he wept profusely. He then killed his wife and then his mother-in-law. The last two years of his life, he killed his two oldest sons. Five days before he died, he killed his last remaining son. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of Herod, he had spies everywhere. He would often put on clothing of an ordinary citizen and mix the multitude at night, asking them what they thought about Herod and his government. When they answered with criticism, they were punished severely or even brought to the citadel where they were put to death. When Herod was dying and he knew he was dying, the last uh, order he did as king is he, he arrested on trumped up charges the distinguished Jews of his land, both men and women, with the strict orders that on the moment he dies, these Jews were to be executed in order to ensure on the day of his death there will be weeping throughout Jerusalem. You add all this to the brutal and unimaginable slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem that we read later in Luke chapter 2. And we see that, that the man ruling in this area was a, a, a madman, a tyrant of the highest order. And so, yes, all Jerusalem was troubled when these magi show up. We, of course, assume there are three magi, but we're not told. We're told there are three gifts, but maybe there was four and, and one guy was cheap. I don't know. Maybe there's 300. Who knows? It, the earliest church tradition says there were 12, even named all 12 of them. We have since the traditions evolved, of course, to, to, to reducing them to three. Maybe 12 is too hard to get into the Christmas pageant. I don't know. But we assume there are three of them. And even if there are only three, mind you, they've traveled hundreds of miles with costly gifts. Matthew will call it treasures. They had no doubt an entourage with them. This would have taken weeks, if not months, of a journey. They would therefore have soldiers. They would have servants. They would have herds for food that they're bringing with them. They are clearly impressive enough to get an audience with the great king, Herod. And they show up asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And therefore, all Jerusalem is on edge, including Herod. You notice how Herod responds to this request in verse 8. It says, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him, which is just code so, that for, so I could go and kill him. That's his intent. This is how Herod responds to the birth of Christ. And I believe he is not alone. I believe there is in the heart of many a, a selfish hatred towards the Messiah. And it may not look like Herod's hatred, but it is a desire for self-preservation. 
See, the moment Herod hears these news, he has one thought, isn't it? Not this is interesting or I want to hear more. He has one thought and the thought is himself. His thought is maintaining his position, maintaining his power, maintaining his right to rule himself. And I believe that the world is actually full of Herods, not tyrants, but people who claim the right to be their own king, just like Herod. And if you claim the right to be your own king, I tell you, Jesus will be a threat to you because he claims that right. And yet for many people that say, no, I will decide what is right for me, what is wrong with me, for me. I will decide where I want to go and what I want to do, and I'll decide who I want to be in relationship with, and no one has the right to tell me this, and no one has a right to tell me that. And, and to tell, tell someone, you come up to someone and say, listen, Jesus demands to be your king. He is king of kings, Lord of lords. One day he will come in judgment, and you better bow your knee to him. You will notice their reaction is not one of joy and celebration. But it is quite often anger, disdain, right? Christ is, listen, Christ is okay for Christmas. So let's just keep him in the manger. We want him, him to stay there. Someone once said, Jesus works for me at the Christmas Eve party, but I'd rather not have him at the New Year's Eve party. I tell you, if Herod is in you, you got a little Herod in you, Jesus will be a threat to you. You will put up defenses not to believe, not to worship. You, you, you will say, you know, the faith in which I grew up is nonsense. I've, I've matured now, and there will be all these objections that you have. You say, it can't be, this can't be true, that can't be true. But you'll never sit down and actually deal with it because you're not interested in dealing with it. You're interested in keeping Jesus at arm's length so that you can rule your life. This is the life of Herod. I would encourage you, if you've noticed this in your own heart, that you would drop your arms of rebellion. You would bow your knee to this king. The wonderful great news is that this king is not a tyrant like Herod. He, yes, he, he demands to rule in your life, but he will rule only for your good, eternally. He has all the blessings of God in his hands, and it would delight him to give them to you even now if you would submit. The Bible says if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's repentance, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is faith, you will be saved. Some respond with this, this selfish hatred. However, there's another response here in Matthew chapter 2. We might call it senseless laziness. Notice that these wise men, they come and they ask this question in verse 2, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Where we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Herod, of course, doesn't know, but he's going to call upon those who do. We see it in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Right? So they clearly have no problem answering this question. Where's the Messiah coming from? They go right to Micah chapter 5. They, they, they may get out the scroll, maybe even quote it for memory. I mean, come on, Herod, do you have a harder question? That's an easy one. They knew it. They knew the truth, and yet you'll notice that they do nothing with that knowledge. Just imagine this. These are men, scribes, who spent their whole life studying the Scripture. People who know the Scripture probably far better than you and I ever will. These are Jewish men who are living in anticipation of the Messiah coming. And they actually happen to be the scholars of Scripture and the day in which Jesus is born. And yet they do nothing. They don't rejoice. 
They don't give thanks. They don't pray. They don't even follow the Magi to investigate. Their, the, in my mind, their inactivity is staggering in light of the greatness that's having, happening around them. In fact, you contrast them with the Magi, right? These Magi have traveled across a continent. They've spent months in travel and probably months in preparation prior to their travel. And these religious conservatives will not walk the five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see what it's all about. You can very easily imagine them going home and spouse saying, you know, how was work today, honey? And you say, well, it was good. It's the king called us in today. Oh, really? What did he want to know? Well, he wanted to know where the Messiah was to be born. And, and we told him right away. And I even got out the scroll and showed it to him. And, and he was really pleased with that. Now, what's for dinner? Is the game on tonight? There's no desire. There's no love. I mean, you think, why, why not go with them? They're not interested. They're interested in their own life, their own priorities. There's no desire to worship Him. And I think many, many people live like that. I think there are many people who go even to church, sit in pews week by week, people who know the Bible, know the the Scripture, and their lives are no different than those who live outside the church. They pursue their jobs in the same way. They treat their spouses the same way. They speak the same way. They they, they treat their enemies the same way. They forgive the same way. They don't pray. They don't give. They don't read the word. They don't worship. And I would just point this out to you, my brothers and sisters, that it is possible to live close to God, to have an understanding of God, and yet to not long for Him. And that maybe you know some facts, right? Maybe you know some biblical stories, but, but is there a pursuit of Jesus in your life? Is there a change in your life? I, I, I think we ought to beware because these men, I don't think, understand that they have deceived themselves. It's very subtle. I don't think they thought themselves lazy about God. I think they loved the idea of a Messiah. They just didn't love the Messiah. Right? I think it's easy to love the stories of the Bible and mistake that for loving the God of the Bible. You say, well, how can I tell? Well, you can tell if you want to live a life that pleases Him and obeys Him and, and, and longs for Him. You know, there's some people like Herod who, who hate the idea of a king other than themselves. But there are many, I think many more people who like the idea of a king, just not enough to seek Him. And certainly not enough to be inconvenienced by Him. There's a laziness amongst those who even have knowledge of this truth. And we see this terrible response. May God help us to avoid it. That we might become more like these magi in their responses. You see them responding with sacrificial worship. As you note in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So off these magi go, these wise men. They're they're somewhat, of course, mysterious, aren't they? We get no real context or understanding of who these individuals were, but most likely they're um, Persians, or they might have called them Babylonians. Today we would call them Iranians, or maybe Iraqis. Um, we, we, of course, know these are ancient civilizations, and we consider their records. They have some of the most accurate uh, 
uh, graphs of the stars and the skies. Their astronomy was far beyond any other civilization. Of course, they also practiced astrology in those lands, trying to discern the future from the alignment of the stars. They're called magi. Uh, We get two English words from the word magi. You might even be able to guess them. One is magic. And the other English word we get from this is a magistrate. And so these guys, were, were, they weren't kings. They, they were servants to kings. They were like political advisors slash sorcerer, right? So these mystical professors. We find them elsewhere in the Bible. They're actually found in the book of Daniel living in Babylon as counselors to King Nebuchadnezzar. You could read their story in Daniel chapter 2. It's interesting because the king is troubled by a dream that he has and he summons all the magi to him and he says, listen, I need you guys to tell me what the dream is and tell me its interpretation. And the magi say, well, you know, that's kind of a a tall ask. Can, Can you, well, how about this king? You tell us the dream and then we'll tell you the interpretation. Well, the king's a little bit more savvy than that and says, no, no, no. I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed. You're telling me what I dreamed. And then you tell me what it means. And if you don't, I'm going to kill every one of you. Well, Daniel gets word of this. And he says, oh, great king, um, can I have a day, please? And the king says, I'll give you a day. And Daniel goes and prays. And God, in his great kindness, gives Daniel not just the interpretation, but the dream itself. He comes back the next day to the king and says, my God has given me your dream and the interpretation. And he goes on to tell King Nebuchadnezzar that, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are great and mighty and there is no one on this earth like you. But I am sorry to tell you there is another king coming. And he is far greater than you. In fact, he is a king from heaven. And that takes a little bit of courage, doesn't it? But King Nebuchadnezzar was pleased with Daniel. And you'll read in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48 that because Daniel did this, he was made the chief prefect over all the magi in Babylon. Now, I'm speculating here. But that was 600 years, about maybe 500 years before Christ was born. Could you imagine these magi gathering under their new ruler, their leader, Daniel, telling him, telling them about, about this king who is coming, this Messiah who is coming, and, and that being passed on in this order of magi after generation to generation to generation until one day these magi who continually study the stars see this, this miraculous star in the sky and they begin their journey across the continent. I mean, how amazing is it that they have so, so little to go on and go to such great cost and, and hardship and expense to travel hundreds of miles. We three kings of Orient are, right? Bearing gifts, we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. And here they come, these Persians, these Iranians. They're not Jews. They have their own king. And yet they're coming to this king, and I think they're coming to claim this baby as not simply their king. They are coming to claim him as their God. For when they find him, they bow before him and worship, as we see in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And as they do, they teach us. How to worship. They help answer this question. Have you worshipped Jesus this Advent season? You notice three uh, realities of their worship. We begin by seeing that worship includes joy. As we see in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's quadruple joy, by the way. Not just they rejoiced, 
Not just they rejoiced with joy. Not just they rejoiced with great joy, but they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I tell you, true worship of God engages your heart. It engages your soul. Worship does not simply recite facts and shrug its shoulders and go on its merry way. It is a stirring of the soul. It is a delight of the heart. And they come to Him and they are filled with abounding joy. Rejoicing greatly with great joy. My question for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is have you rejoiced in Christ like this, this Christmas season? Has this been a time of great, exceeding joy? You know, by the way, they, they don't end up in a temple. They don't show up in a palace. It's just a, just a humble home. They, they've moved out of the manger by this point. They've gone to a house. And, and, and you, they get there and there's no entourage. There's no servants. There's no line of dignitaries out in the street. There's no soldiers guarding this helpless king. They walk into this humble home, maybe 500 square feet, maybe 300. And they see an infant on the lap of a peasant girl. And their hearts are stirred with great and exceeding joy. They haven't watched him heal the sick or command a demon or walk on water or raise the dead. They haven't heard him confound the prideful, rebuke the judgmental or teach the masses. They certainly haven't watched him die for sinners like me and you or conquer the grave or ascend to heaven. I tell you, they know far, far less than you and I do. And yet they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. How much more reason do you and I have redeemed by this Savior to have hearts filled with joy? How much more? How much greater is our shame when we do not? God wants your heart. He wants your delight. I don't know how many times in the Bible He commands us to be joyful. Rejoice, Scripture says. Always. They come and they see worship has joy. But secondly, you notice worship includes reverence. Verse 11. And they're going into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. They, they, they bowed before him. Now, I remind you that these are great Persian men who serve a great king. They have a great deal of dignity and they are falling down before a Jewish baby on the lap of a peasant girl. This is very um, awkward, to say the least. It is uh, shameful. And yet, I'll tell you, it doesn't matter when it comes to worship. When we rightly worship, we forget about ourselves. In fact, when we're worshiping, our dignity is the last thing on our mind. We are so occupied with the thoughts of the greatness of the one to whom we are worshiping that you're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about what you like or what's going on. There's this compulsion in you to declare however you can that he is high and that you are low, that he is the one that is worthy of honor and, and might and majesty and dignity and exaltation and glory and you just want to ascribe it to him there is a a reverence in our heart when we worship and so the question for us is when is the last time we've expressed that awe that fear and that reverence to him when's the last time you've bowed 
Not, not just figuratively, literally. Right? We don't bow, we're Americans. Right? We stopped bowing in 1776. Right? We, we shake hands, that's what we do. We look people in the eye, one man, one vote, all men created equal, there's no bowing. This men come before this baby, and in fact, they don't just get on their knees, they put their face in the dirt. They, they, they perhaps kiss the ground, or maybe even kiss the feet of Jesus. Now, can you just imagine what that must have been like? This little baby Jesus holding on to, to his mother's robe, and Mary just wide-eyed, this this teenager, as these grown men come in and they are falling on their face before her son, worshiping him. You see, worship's both. It's, see, worship's just not ascribing God dignity. It's not just bowing. Worship, moreover, it's not just not getting excited with Jesus. It's just not joy. Worship is both. Worship is ascribing Jesus' great honor with great joy. That's what we see. But we see something else, don't we? We see third and last that worship includes sacrifice. That's what you know in verse 11. Then opening their treasures, Matthew says, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. They, they opened their treasures and they gave gifts. I don't, I don't know, is this where the tradition started? Probably not. But uh, you may give gifts this week. You may open gifts this next Sunday, maybe you will remember the first Christmas gifts. Maybe it will remind you of the worship of the Magi. Maybe it would even more remind you of God's gift to us in Christ. So there they come, they bring these gifts. You say, well, what's the point? Why are they bringing gifts? Is this a way, you know, they think he's a king? Are they trying to bribe him? Are they trying to kind of win his favor by here, a uh, great king, here's these gifts? I, I don't think so. They're, you notice they're, they're just not gifting him. They're worshiping him as they do it. I I, I think what we're seeing is that a way to declare to God that we come to Him not for His things, but for Him. That we want to be in relationship with Him, not because He pays out, but because we love Him and we delight in Him. One way to do that is to sacrifice to Him. Not because He needs it. He doesn't need it. But it's a way to say to Him, you know, I'm giving you what I might otherwise enjoy. And in doing so, I'm saying with great clarity and power in my life that you alone are my treasure. That I long for you. And they begin to sacrifice in these gifts. It just so happens that these gifts are not only sacrificial, but they are prophetic. Perhaps unknowingly prophetic. For the prophet Isaiah said, 700 years before this event, then your heart shall thrill and exult because of the wealth of nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You think about these gifts, the gold. What an appropriate gift for a king. Jesus, of course, is our king. We even sing it. Born a king in Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. And they come bringing gold to a king and frankincense to a priest. Frankincense, you could even hear it in the word, is an incense that is made through this very long process for with a very rare tree called a, called a Boswellia tree. And, and, and it's very rare and very expensive. And the temple priest in the Old Testament would use frankincense as they mediate between God and man. And when they bring him this, this, 
this incense used in the mediation of priests, they're, they're declaring that Jesus is a priest, that he is, in fact, the great high priest who has come to make a way for God and, and, and a rebellious humanity to be united. There, the Bible tells us there is one mediator between men and God, Christ Jesus. So he's our king and he's our priest. But they bring him a, a third gift, and it is the gift of myrrh. Now, I don't know what you're giving your kids on Christmas, but I could guess probably it's not myrrh. Myrrh is a a very expensive spice that, among other things, was used to embalm the dead. Strange thing to give a baby. You see, I think what they're declaring, perhaps even unknowing to them, that that he's not only a king, he's not only a priest, but he is our sacrifice. He is our substitute who has come to die for sin. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume, breeze of life, of gathering doom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. He would be offered myrrh a second time. You know this? Not as a baby, but as a grown man hanging on the cross. The, the king-priest, who was pinned to a Roman cross through nails through his hands and feet, was attended by soldiers who grabbed a stick with a sponge on the end, and they tried to shove it into Jesus' mouth. Some commentators suggest that this device was kind of the battlefield um, uh, means of... uh, It was like toilet paper, put it that way. This was like a toilet brush that they were trying to shove in his mouth. Scripture tells us that on this sponge among other things was myrrh and and, and what what they're doing the, the myrrh would help numb his pain of course as you you probably know um and and yet when they're they're, they're mocking him at the same time and they're trying to help him the lord of course refused he would f- endure the full extent of our pain for our sin he would take no no shortcuts as he would die in our place. They would take his body down from the cross and the ten fingers and the ten toes that Mary counted on Christmas morning were now part of the lifeless body of her son. And it's at this time he was offered myrrh a third and final time. It's recorded for us in John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they wrapped it in linen cloth with spices, as, they, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So they would take the, the body, the corpse of Jesus, and wrap Wrap it in these linen strips soaked in myrrh. This, by the way, is unimaginably expensive. 75 pounds, uh, John tells us. This, by the way, would have been a a burial fit for a king. They wrapped him. They embalmed his body. But I'll tell you, he didn't need his embalming very long. Three days later, 
He got up from those strips and that stone-cold tomb after paying for my sin and for the sin of all who would bow their knee to Him. And He walked out of that tomb. And that we might declare glorious now, behold Him, rise King and God and sacrifice. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Rings through the earth and skies. I'll tell you, a strange gift for a baby. All of them. Yep, not so strange for one who's born to die. Gold for a king of kings, frankincense for our great high priest, myrrh for our suffering Savior as they sacrifice before Him. I wonder, my brothers and sisters in Christ, does your worship include sacrifice? Is there something that you are willing to give up for your God? Are you willing to sacrifice your treasure? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to deny yourself your own desires and dreams because He calls you to a different life? This is the kind of worship which He calls for us. This is the kind of worship which He wants. Joyful, reverent, sacrificial worshipers is what God is seeking. In fact, we see Him seeking it in light of this star. There, of course, are many questions about this star. And I, I mentioned that it is interesting that three times, perhaps on the year when Jesus was born, in that year, Jupiter and Saturn were, were lined up forming a new star. And, and that may certainly have got them to Jerusalem. They, they go to the capital. But it, you notice it didn't get them to Bethlehem. In fact, they, they, they show up in Jerusalem. I find it interesting that it's only once the Scripture identifies He's to be born in Bethlehem does then the star lead them there. Right? They need the Scripture to find Him. I think there's a sermon somewhere in there. Right? But you say, well, wait a second. How does a star take someone from the five-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and then over a particular house. And my answer very clearly is, I have no idea. And it may very well have been just a miraculous light. God has previously led His people by a pillar of fire. I don't know why He can't lead these guys by a a star. But I'll tell you, it's not important, I don't think. The reason why that doesn't tell us is it's not important what it is. What it's important is what it's doing. And it's guiding them to Jesus. I tell you, it's not doing it on its own. It has no intention whatsoever. God is causing it to move. God is guiding these foreigners to Christ. Why? So that He would be worshipped. This father will have his son worshipped at his birth. And he will exert global power. He 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 will cause a nationwide census, the aligning of planets, the appearance of a mysterious star, exerting global power in the heart of Caesar and, and, and cosmological power in the night sky because he wants his son to be worshipped. He will have his worship. Will he have it from you? If God is willing to do that on, on that day, what, what, is his, what is his will now? Is, is it not for you and I to rightly respond to who He is in adoration and reverence and joy and sacrifice, a life of worship? That is God's will. That's why you're here today. 
It's why God made you, why God continues to hold you together. It's why you exist, so that you can bring, find your greatest joy in bringing Him glory. It's why your neighbors exist, why the nations exist. It's why God today is gathering people from all nations and people and tongues and tribes so that they might come before Him and, and give Him worship. Will He have yours? He had it 2,000 years ago. God entered the womb of a virgin that He might save sinners through that boy's sacrificial substitutionary death in order to create worshipers. See, God has sent Him not because we can't work our way to heaven. We have to receive His payment. We have to bow our, our, our hearts in faith and trust in Him. Does He have it? Will you, even this week, will you just commit in your hearts as we end our time this morning, you say, God, I, I, this week I, I, I'm going to focus. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to consider your word. I'm going to read the nativity events this week. I'm, I'm going to spend time in prayer. I'm going to lead my family in worship. I'm going to pray with my spouse. I'm going to obey you with joy in my heart. Will you, will you take the gifts that you have, perhaps even your life, and lay it at his feet and asking him, bowing before him as your king? Will you, will you bring him, if you will, your incense, your, your gold and myrrh? Come peasants and kings to own Him. The King of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone Him. That is our prayer, our Father. That we would enthrone Jesus Christ in our hearts. That we would follow the example laid out for us 2,000 years ago. That we would be people who worship our Christ, our Lord, our King. And that we would do it with reverence and joy and sacrifice. Certainly there are here this morning, Father, some who have never worshipped you a day in their life. They do not know you. They are far from you. I pray in your kindness to them through the power working of your Spirit, will you take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they might repent and believe that Jesus...